dynamic diversity Bringing us together like we're supposed to be Dynamic magazine We're all different but we can learn from each other Dynamic Diversity Unfiltered. Dynamic Leaders for a Changing World Magazine's premier podcast. We bring you the voices of today's renowned societal leaders and average folks talking about what they do, how they got there, and what they're thinking about in the controversial world of diversity, inclusion, and race relations. In this episode, there's been a lot of apparent discrimination in the uh on behalf of insurers uh, toward people with HIV since the launch of Obamacare and the market-based plan. Um, so you'll see insurers put like all the HIV drugs on the highest copay tier, making them very expensive for people. We spoke with writer and editor Ben Ryan on HIV AIDS and the different avenues to combat the epidemic. It has long been a sad fact that there is a stigma surrounding HIV and the LGBTQI community. For activist Ben Ryan, starting the conversation to educate and inform others has been a lifelong passion to which he stays true. He told Dynamic about his work with various foundations, AIDS drugs on the market, and changes to policy that could help to combat an ever-present health problem. So the first question I have for you is, tell our readers what growing up in Seattle was like, and what was the general attitude towards the LGBTI community then? Um, I was born in 1978, so when I was in in high school in the mid-90s, I guess things were really changing in the pop culture sphere at the time very rapidly when it came to um, the visibility of gay people on television, for example. So, like, my so-called life aired my sophomore year in high school, and there was a gay character in that show, um, for example. And I guess it was... For me, no one had ever come out in my school before me. Uh, I went to a very small private school in Seattle, which had about 48 kids per class. It was a K-12 school, which I went to the whole way. So there was no real precedent for anyone coming out, but the culture at large seemed to be changing so rapidly that I, I felt comfortable enough to do so um, at the end of my junior year in 1996. Um, it was really kind of a non-event. I was almost disappointed that there wasn't more drama. I was expecting to be this sort of scandalous center of attention or something, and and people just sort of shrugged. I mean, they all knew me, and it was not surprise. It wasn't a surprise by any means. And um, so, um, yeah, several Seattle's a very liberal place, and um, I really never had any any notable problems. So, um, and that's certainly a testament for to the overall environment um, that I grew up in. Okay, and why a career in writing and journalism? I've been an actor when I was a kid, and then I went to Columbia for English. And uh, pretty early on, I kind of decided to give up acting. I was tired of it, and, and it didn't sort of feel serious enough to me um, in many ways. Not that it can't be a serious pursuit, but um, I started writing for the school paper and sort of realized I had a knack for 
writing and such. And I think the the baseline impetus to do so was the notion of being able to sort of sway the conversation in society about whatever topic is important to me to sort of expose wrongs and to educate people and and uh, I certainly at the time you know saw news making as a very worthy pursuit um, because of the ability to educate and both my parents are were educators in, in different ways my dad was a doctor teaching in a it worked in a teaching hospital my mother was a teacher an English teacher so um you know, without really meaning to, my my job, I have pursued a job in which I am essentially a teacher to people. So that that can be very gratifying to to sort of have the sense that people are benefiting from my work and that I'm not writing stuff that's destructive and or sort of fluff or whatever. Okay. And what prompted your extensive investment in the HIV field, mm-hmm. and why is getting this information out there so important? Right. I um around the time that I was coming out in 1995, 1996, I was looking to ways to sort of figure out what the gay world was all about, and so I started doing volunteer work um, at an AIDS foundation in Seattle. At the time, it was called the Northwest AIDS Foundation. It's now called the Lifelong AIDS Alliance. And I first I worked in there for the AIDS ride and or the AIDS walk, <clears throat> rather, starting in the summer of. 1995, and I was just turned 17, and um, <clears throat> and then I eventually was uh, an intern at the public policy department at the foundation for basically until I finished went to college in 1997, and then then a, another summer after that, 1998, um, and it was partly I just grew up in a, a household where my parents both did various kinds of volunteer work, and there was this sort of just kind of baseline notion that. Your responsibility was expected of you to get involved in various ways, so it's just sort of a natural extension of life and just my overall activities. And and then it was like that kind of thing where you want to get some, you know, thing on your college resume that looks impressive. But not that I didn't really enjoy it. I went, you know, won this like Volunteer of the Year mm-hmm. award after my second year and that sort of thing. So I um my job at the time when I was in the policy department was in part to um, cut out all the newspapers, and, uh, you know, this was before the Internet, so I would clip the newspapers and assemble them into packets uh, about all the HIV news, both local and national, I mean, and international. And um, so in the process, I read every single HIV article imaginable for a couple of years. Um, and then when I was in college, I um, was looking around for other extracurriculars, and I ended up uh, for four years volunteering in the Columbia Health Services um, HIV Test Center, um, which is actually the it's called the Gay Health Advocacy Project, and it was the oldest it is the oldest um, college campus based HIV testing center in the world. It was founded in 1985, um, right after the HIV test was approved by the FDA, and I really enjoyed that. It was kind of this ability to be a therapist very acutely with somebody sometimes, um, you know, without a lot of training, frankly. But um, it was fascinating because sex, you know, and when you people are anxious about contracting a disease from sex, brings up a ton of anxieties that touch so many different facets of life. And, you know, mostly we didn't really talk about HIV in the sessions. We'd talk about, you know, problems with their roommate or I remember one guy 
you know, who was basically at zero risk of HIV, was concerned that he was going to get AIDS and die, and and then he wouldn't be able to take care of his family back in South America, and so it, it brought up a lot of really grueling and fascinating issues um, in those sessions. So um, then I finished college in 2001, and and um, busy looking for freelance work, and immediately started writing about HIV for magazines and stuff. So um, it's been 15 years now, and um, so in a way, it's I've continued it out of habit, but. Over the last four years, I've been writing for Pause Magazine as their science reporter, and that's that's been a big change for me um, to focus just on science. And I found that I really enjoy it, and I have a very sort of logical mind for these sort of things, I guess. And um, it's also coincided with the rise of PrEP um, and the notion that HIV treatment can almost fool, you know, if someone has an undetectable HIV viral load because of treatment that they almost virtually cannot infect somebody. So this increasing knowledge um, has created a, quite a demand for the kind of writing that I do. So it's it's sort of like having the same hairstyle for 20 years and all of a sudden it's cool and everyone's congratulating you or something. So it's nice to sort of be in the middle <laughs> of, of all that's going on with uh, people's discourse about this and People are constantly emailing me and asking me questions about prep and stuff, and and um, so it's been cool to be able to sort of contribute to the dialogue and try to get you know factual information out there and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, in terms of like why it's important to discuss HIV, HIV is you know um, still a, a grave threat to the health, especially of um, men who have sex with men, as, as the public health term goes. Um, and in particular, young black MSM, and especially those in the South, where there just are really poor resources for um, dealing with the epidemic. And, uh, you know, things like they don't have expanded Medicaid in most states, for example, because of Republican obstructionism, et cetera. So, um, you know, there's, this is still a very vital service. Okay. And, and you, you know, mm-hmm. um, just to, you know, just to educate people about their health, whether they have HIV or their, their risk of HIV or they're worried about it. Um, to try to, you know, it, you know, in essence, get people to take good care of themselves. Okay. And you talk, touched on PrEP a while ago. Um, tell mm-hmm. our readers a bit about that. Um, what it is, it's a, a drug called Truvada. It's made by Gilead Sciences. Um, it's actually a, a tablet that contains two different antiretrovirals, which are each used for HIV treatment, um, called tenofovir and emtricitabine. And typically when someone is being treated for HIV, they'll take three, maybe four antiretrovirals at a time. And the reason for that is because they each attack the virus's life cycle in various stages. You want a certain amount of redundancy um, to be able to really keep the virus totally suppressed at all times. Um, But they found that you really only need two drugs in order to prevent HIV. And the way with PrEP, and the way that it works is that an individual ideally takes Truvada every day, and um, there's very good data for men who have sex with men. The data is not as good for, for heterosexual women, but essentially MSM, um, if taking the drug every day, have a greater than 99% reduced risk of contracting HIV. Um, so that was approved in 2012 by the FDA in, in July 2012. It was a very slow Basically, the first year, nothing much happened. Nobody really went on it. And then media really started covering it in the fall of 2013. Like, why isn't anybody taking this miracle drug and all this sort of thing? Um, 
And then since then, we've seen a very rapid acceleration of prescriptions, um, new prescriptions for PrEP around the country, although they're they're rather concentrated in basically a handful of major urban areas, including New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, um, Seattle. So, and that's that's a big problem because you really don't see much use of it in the South, um, where HIV really is, is out of control in many ways because of, as I said earlier, the lack of local investment. Um, so it's it's a big change for people um, in terms of dealing with their anxieties about HIV and their ability to prevent it, um, to use harm reduction methods, to lower the risk of people who are already engaging in very high-risk sexual practices, namely n- numerous partners, lack of condom use or inconsistent condom use, et cetera. So um, and it's also changing gay sex in general because the, at least the data is still kind of like sifting and showing this, but from my impression of a lot of anecdotal evidence from speaking with people and such, um, there are at least a number of people, a certain proportion, who go on PrEP who end up engaging in higher-risk sexual practices as a result. Um, and that's a phenomenon called risk compensation, which you might see, say, if somebody puts on sunscreen and then thinks they're so protected from skin cancer that they then spend two and a half times more time in the sun, and as a result, um, they're more actually at higher risk of skin cancer. So um, you're not really at higher risk of HIV if, so long as you're taking PrEP, you know, at least four days a week, which is actually all you really need to take for maximum protection, although it's not recommended to take it that infrequently. Um, but you are certainly at, at higher risk of other STDs, for example, if um, you, say, use condoms less after starting PrEP. So it's been a big sea change. It's been very exciting, but also it's um, this is sort of a time when it's unclear which way the wind is blowing about how prep will really change the landscape of sex on gay men, for example. Okay, and you once wrote a health column for Gay.com. Oh, there's yeah. <laughs> often a stigma attached to HIV in the gay community. So, yeah. in light of that, how has your research and volunteer work helped to clear up some of this misinformation, and how has this benefited the gay community in general? Um, I don't know. That, that column was kind of stupid, frankly. It was a, <laughs> was a terrible place to work, terrible um, site to work for. So I don't really have a whole lot to say about that experience. But um, um, stigma. Around HIV and the gay world is, is changing a lot because of PrEP and because of the awareness that HIV treatment can prevent people with HIV from transmitting. Um, so I've seen a lot of improvement in that realm um, in recent years, and that's certainly shown in the, in the data. Um, so, you know, there's um, all I can say is just that stigma does seem to be improving, but it's still very real. And there's still a lot of judgment attached to being HIV positive, people are afraid for people to know. They're worried that they'll be rejected if they're, say, on a dating website. And when should they tell people and that sort of thing? So I think also a difference between now and 20 years ago is there's much less of a kind of a badge of honor that people would have about the identity of being HIV positive. Um, you know, stating that out loud was a very brave political act. You know, and it was important to the time of normalizing HIV enough to get the kind of resources that were necessary and which very much were mobilized um, during the early crisis years of HIV. So I think people with HIV are often less visible today because there's less motivation to be political about it. 
Um, but in a way, also, it's because HIV is kind of normalized already, so they don't really need to pitch in with that effort. So. And what are some of the policies and considerations that you would recommend be put in place to help those living with HIV and AIDS? Well, certainly the expansion of Medicaid um, in all 50 states, especially in the South. Um, uh, lack of access to Medicaid affects people with HIV in many ways because they're less likely to be tested for HIV and then treated, um, as well as people because uh, Medicaid covers PrEP. You know, it's a good resource for people with low income so they can access it. So that's that's a huge problem. Um, there's been a lot of apparent discrimination in the uh, in, on the behalf of insurers uh, toward people with HIV since the launch of Obamacare and the marketplace plans. Um, so you'll see insurers put like all the HIV drugs on the highest copay tier, making them very expensive for people, um, or limiting their formularies. And there have been a series of one-off lawsuits to try to combat this, but essentially. Fixing this problem in the ACA could be as simple as it's not it's not an executive order, but there's some sort of executive action that could come from a U.S. president um, stating what the guidelines are, what's required of certain insurers um, when it comes to designing an HIV uh, treatment formulary. Uh, so that would be one. Um, certainly, anti-discrimination laws for LGBT people um, would be important. Um, that kind of scorn and discrimination certainly could trickle down to the healthcare realm. Um, people, you know, who feel shunned by society may be less likely to trust the medical establishment, less less likely to be, say, treated for STDs. STDs can raise your risk of, of HIV contraction or transmission. So um, that would be one. I can't think of anything else off the top of my head. Um, I don't, I don't tend to think in the policy realm as much. And certainly just spending money, um, as we've seen, and a lot of the real mobility around trying to bend the curve and drive the epidemic down um, is taken on the state or local level. San Francisco, New York State, partnering with New York City, have both spent a lot of money and arranged um, new initiatives to kind of attack the virus from all sides. So that's something that's, perhaps what they're better suited for than nationally, but just the same, it would be nice to see um, a more national-based effort similar to those to get people on the ground in local areas, in places like Atlanta, for example, where HIV is really out of control, um, to do a better job of combating the epidemic. And the LGBTI website, QWERTY.com, has called you the nearly naked AIDS advocate who can dance. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so tell our readers about your right. advent into the performing art um, and how yeah, I started, your work has helped to read right. As I said, I was an actor when I was a kid, and I'd done a little dancing, but I didn't have a lot of time for training, and... I was always interested in it. My best friend in high school was and still is a ballet dancer. Um, so when I was 26, on a, something of a whim, I started taking theater and jazz class, jazz dance classes. And I got really into it. And by the time I was 29, I started taking ballet. And, um, and so it's been nine years since I started ballet. I guess I've been dancing for um, 12 years, all told. Um, 
so I started, there's this show that a uh, nonprofit called Bravo Cares Equity Fights AIDS, it's based in New York City, that they put on um, Can you every that for me? It's called Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. Um, it's okay. and they put on this rather massive benefit show every June. That's kind of like like one of the highlights of the summer um, in New York City. It's a essentially a it's a, about an hour and ten minute show with about t- maybe eleven numbers um, and all these little comedy sketches with celebrities and stuff. Um, it's a kind of a Broadway style uh, burlesque show dance review. So they have a theme every year, and then it's sort of this kind of a through line to the show. But mostly, it's just these very elaborate numbers with all these strip teases and stuff. So, um, and it's gotten more and more elaborate every year. We moved to a bigger space uh, two years ago called Hammerstein Ballroom, um, and which accommodated a lot more sort of pyrotechnics, if you. Uh, and such, not pyrotechnics, literally, but uh, like LED screens and such. So it's it used the last few years. It's raised over a million dollars um, gross per year. So I had seen this show many times in my early to mid twenties and thought it was just the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And eventually started imagining that maybe one day I would be in this show. And how in the world could I weasel my way in? So after I've been dancing for three years. In 2008, I just got a headshot and put my resume in the pile, and I got on the show. And somewhat to my surprise, there's a pledge drive, which we call the Strip-a-thon, before the show. Um, it's kind of like doing a walk-a-thon, but you're asking for money for, to be in this strip show. So somewhat to my surprise, I started raising a lot of money, um, and that year raised like $7,600 or something, and I was the third highest fundraiser amongst all the dancers. And um, so I've raised just under, I've raised about $97,000 in my eight years in the show. Um, I've done it every year except 2011. Um, so, and the the dancers in general, they have, I think this year they raised, oh, together we raised about $600,000 just in the strip-a-thon. So, been really cool to watch everybody get really excited and involved in that. Um, so it, it's a it's a funny cross section of all my different pursuits and interests um, being in the show, and um, it's certainly a lot of fun and um, you know gives me the opportunity to be very silly and crazy and for one little experience a year, and then go back to kind of desk work, you know. And you have also been quoted as saying that ultimately the show Broadway Bears is. A- Celebration of the body. Tell us right. why this is so important. Well, Jerry Mitchell, who founded the show, and I believe it was 1991. I could be wrong about that. Um, he is a very successful theater director and choreographer. He choreographed Hairspray. He created um, Kinky Boots and many other shows. On Your Feet, which is on Broadway right now, the Gloria Estefan musical. Um, he founded it. It was just like a simple striptease in a in a bar at first. It raised a few thousand dollars. And what he always tells us when we're you know in rehearsals is that at the time you know because it was the height of the AIDS crisis, the people were really scared and and there was a fear you know just to touch people and be touched and and that uh, the show was a celebration of the body you know and and a way of sort of breaking down stigma in that way. So. Um, I guess the show really tries to maintain that kind of ethos uh, to this day. 
Um, and it, it's kind of like, it's never like a, um, a lewd show, L-E-W-D, um, but it's, you know, it's sort of flirty and kind of racy, so it's it's kind of having fun with sexuality and uh, and just physicality and that sort of thing, and just celebrating um, what people can do with their bodies, which many of these people on the show are incredibly talented dancers, and the things they can do are just amazing to me. So um, it's it's a great tradition in that sense, and a way of kind of taking something that started in the past and kind of changing it for today's purposes, because, you know, the needs of people with HIV are different, and the Robic Harris now, you know, gives a lot of its grant money to other causes as well, other health-related causes, so... And that sort of parallels what you've seen, for example, you know, like the the AIDS hospice that was in my neighborhood in Seattle growing up pretty much just has cancer patients now. So um, it's kind of cool to see, you know, setting up this kind of system of, of caring for people and, and adopting it to the needs of, you know, who, who needs it most and so on. Okay, perfect. And what is next for you? Uh, what's next for me? I am, what am I doing? Um, I don't know, just, uh, you know, I've got my gig writing for Paws, and I also cover Hepatitis C for them. They have a magazine called HEP, H-E-P, um, and I'm the science writer for both of those publications. So uh, just kind of plugging away, I'm working on an article right now about um, PrEP use amongst African-American men of sex with men. Um, the use has not been particularly high in that group, which is concerning since it could do a lot of good because their rates are so disproportionately higher than any other risk group. Um, so just, you know, starting to plan for going to HIV conferences next year. There's the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections in Seattle in February, and then there's the International AIDS Conference in Paris in, Ju- in July, and um, otherwise just kind of um, poking around for their freelance work. And the last question I have for you, then, is what do you hope your legacy will be? Gosh, it sounds like a president. Um, well, I guess I, you know, I, I think about the movie It's a Wonderful Life a lot, and, you know, I call it the George Bailey effect. It's, we sometimes sort of, especially with living in New York City, around so many people who are very successful and wealthy or whatever, and you know, staring at Facebook and such, it's comparing oneself to others is such a problem these days for a lot of people, including myself. Um, so it's easy to forget all the ways that you affect the world around you, um, you know, even if they're very small, but but still vital. So um, it's hard for me to measure what those effects are, but I do hope that, you know, with the time that I've spent in my life, that, you know, it's, it's led people to be healthier and, and make good decisions and be more informed in that sort of thing. So um, perhaps prevent the spread of HIV. So save lives, who knows? Um, so it's just I'm hoping to make a positive stamp on the world, really. And once again, right. thank you for taking the time to do the interview. Sure. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. And remember, you can talk about making a difference, you can take action to make a difference, or you can join Dynamic in doing both. Until next time, stay blessed and be inspired.